I'm going to read briefly from Joshua chapter 23. This will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage this morning. Sermon will come from Acts chapter 20, but first we'll provide the context with Joshua 23. We're about the midway point in our short series through shepherding, looking at this metaphor that is used for church leadership in the scriptures. What does it mean when it says elders are shepherds and they are to do the work of shepherding? We're going to consider, uh, fourthly today, how the Apostle Paul uses that metaphor in Acts chapter 20 when he addresses the elders in Ephesus. We've already seen Jesus address it three different times, how Jesus uses that metaphor of shepherding three times in his earthly ministry. But to provide a little context for what Paul will say and how he'll use it, let's look at Joshua chapter 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous. To keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among all these nations, these who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them or bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and... Cling to the remnants of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they, to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, This day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass. That as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, 
so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Amen. Joshua has come to a place in his life that every leader must deal with. He is old and advanced in age. If God is merciful, every leader has to deal with the issue of getting old and advanced in age. Now, whether God actually brings leaders to old age or not, all leaders have to deal with this problem. We won't be leaders forever. The elders that you have now will not be your elders forever. The pastor that you have now will not be your pastor forever. This is the reality. Leaders come and leaders go. And Joshua has come to the moment where he has to turn over his reign. Now Joshua has an example before him in Moses. That Moses also came to a point where God came to Moses and said to him, Hey, you're old and advanced in age. And Moses went to Joshua and Israel and said, Hey, I'm old and advanced in age. Now it's Joshua's turn. But Moses had Joshua. Who does Joshua have? He doesn't have an obvious leading messianic successor. And so instead, what Joshua does is he gathers all the officers of the church. The elders, the heads, the judges, the officers. And he says to them collectively, now it's your turn. There's a succession from Moses to Joshua to the elders and the judges. And he says, what I have done, you must now do. And in his message, Joshua has this one command. Cling to God. Do you notice that? At no point does Joshua say, conquer the enemy. At no point does Joshua say, go win the wars. At no point does Joshua say, take possession. Joshua instead says, cling to God. Love God. Obey God. He says repeatedly, God's going to do all the fighting. God's going to do all the winning. Your job is to cling to him. With that in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 20. Our sermon passage this morning will come from Acts chapter 20. Paul is addressing the elders of Ephesus. He is bidding them farewell, much as Joshua is doing in chapters 23 and 24 of his book. Acts is here, Paul is here in Acts 20, giving, him, giving them his fond farewell as he prepares to go to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, going through verse 35. Here again the word of the Lord. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus. And called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, 
repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go, bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, excuse me, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) To draw away from the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Amen. Fond farewells have a way of stirring all our feelings. There's nothing like that dramatic moment when Frodo hands the red book to Sam and says there's a few more pages just for you. Where he leaves, but he leaves the book in Sam's hands. In like manner, Moses stands on the plains of Moab. And he's about to say farewell to Israel, whom he has led for 40 years. He does more than hand them the little red book. He hands them all the scrolls, the five scrolls. And he preaches a sermon that is the book of Deuteronomy. It's like Joshua standing there with Israel in Joshua 23, 24. And he preaches to the leaders, this is the covenant, keep it. It's like David lying in his bed, speaking to his son Solomon and charging him, be wise and rule justly. These fond farewells fill our hearts and sometimes our eyes. The Apostle Paul has gathered together his beloved elders. And he speaks to them this fond farewell. And he urges them to take his place. Notice that in each of these transitions, in each of these stories, there's a passing of the baton. 
that within the lifespan of the church, that within the experience of Christianity, leaders do not depart and the story ends. But rather, in the words of Bilbo, the story goes on and we come and go with the telling. Friends, the truth is, it's Jesus who leads the church. It is Jesus who leads the church through his elders. And so we need to keep our focus on him. What Paul would have us know about shepherding is that elders are Jesus' instruments to lead his church. And so both elders and members must keep their attention on Christ. Keep Christ first. Look with me this morning at the text and notice in the first place, the Apostle Paul, having gathered the elders together on the beach there in Miletus, while the water is washing up on the surf and they're standing there on the edge of the Mediterranean, he is speaking to them this farewell and he tells them of how he lived among them. There in verse 18, he says, you remember how I have been here since the first day I came to Asia. Now, for a guy who generally spends no more than six to eight weeks in any given city, the more than two, three years that he's lived in Ephesus is the longest stay Paul has known in his adult apostolic ministry. Ephesus is the home church, if Paul had ever known a home church. He's leaving men with whom he has labored for years, and it's a heavy burden on his heart. And so he wants to speak this fond farewell to them, and He begins by reviewing the manner in which he lived among them. And he gives them two. Two ways in which he has lived among them. First, verse 19, with all humility. Within the Hebrew mindset, humility has to do with affliction or lowness or suffering. In the Hebrew language, which is not used here, this is Greek. But within the Hebrew language with which Paul is familiar... The word for humility and affliction is the same word. It is the idea that we are brought low. If we are brought low by circumstances, we call it affliction. If we are brought low by our own self-assessment, we call it humility. In other words, Paul is describing his littleness. He served the Lord with a small sense of self. He willingly suffered many tears. He willingly suffered many trials. The plotting of his enemies made him think of himself in a small way. He became preoccupied with other matters and other concerns, not himself. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it's not so much that the Apostle Paul thought of himself less, or as a smaller person, but that he thought of himself less often, that he was less preoccupied with himself. He served the Lord in Ephesus with all humility. This is what Jesus wants from his elders. There is a progression here that as Paul takes off the mantle of leadership in Ephesus, he is laying that yoke on the shoulders of the elders and saying, as I lived among you with all humility, a small self-awareness, So now the elders must live in Ephesus with a small self-awareness. To be good elders means to embrace what Kenneth G. Smith called 
a glorious self-unawareness. We lose that self-pity and that preoccupation with ourselves. And instead, serve the Lord with a large sense of His grace and His glory. A willingness to cry and a willingness to hurt and a willingness to be broken. I remember encountering some years ago when John MacArthur was asked, why don't you tell as many jokes in your sermons as you used to? He said, accumulated sadness. Sabbath by Sabbath, week by week, the elders of the church accumulate tears. They accumulate trials. And little by little, elders wake up to the reality that the job they are doing is killing them. Week by week, little by little. Why do they do it? Why does anyone do it? Because of the small sense of self. A willingness to serve the Lord. Whatever the tears, whatever the trials. But secondly, the Apostle Paul says that he not only served with all humility, but he served the Lord in a helpful manner. This is verse 20. I kept nothing back that was helpful. He speaks of his helpfulness in two ways. First, in verse 20, he proclaimed whatever was helpful publicly, house to house, to Jew and Greek. By these two contrasts, publicly and house to house, Jew and Greek, Paul means everywhere and to everyone. There is a universality to his effort. Paul was pursuing a maximum helpfulness. He preached publicly in the synagogue every Sabbath. He preached publicly in the marketplace whenever they were there. He preached privately, house to house, visiting the people of God. He also then testified to both Jews and Greeks, making no exclusions. Paul was very helpful. But then he also is helpful specifically in testifying to repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The Paul means by this helpfulness is that what is maximally helpful for everyone everywhere is that we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Not only does Paul have a very small sense of himself serving the Lord with all humility, Paul has a huge sense of Jesus. That what everyone needs is to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to turn away from myself, to turn away from my sins, to turn away from this world, and to turn toward God in Christ. This is the manner in which Paul lived among them. A small sense of self and a huge sense of Jesus. For our purposes then, I hope the application is pretty clear, right? If we're going to have an elder election this fall, we need to find men who have a really small sense of self and a really big sense of Jesus. Who think of themselves less often And think of Jesus more often. Because this is what the mantle is. That Jesus, having taken off his earthly ministry, laid that ministry on the apostles. But now in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is taking off that ministry that Jesus gave him and giving it to the elders. 
Jesus once led the church in his own earthly ministry in his body, but no longer. He then ruled and led his church through his apostles, but no longer. Now Jesus leads his church through his elders. And that is why they have to have a very small sense of themselves and a very large sense of Jesus. Because it's not about what I want. It's not about what these guys want. It's not our church and we're not in charge. It needs to be a very small sense of self that operates in the elder. It's Jesus' church. It's about what he wants. It's about what he's doing. Elders need to have an awareness of Jesus, an attentiveness to Jesus that says, whether I'm in public or in private, whether I'm with Jew or with Greek, the answer is repent and believe in Jesus. There was this little game that we were playing in family worship uh, just this last week as we were going through the text. You guys have heard me do this before. It's the job of an elder or a pastor to say, Jesus. And then to say, no, 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 you're not listening. I said, Jesus. You keep thinking job. You keep thinking marriage. You keep thinking kid. You keep thinking all these details. And the answer is stop. Think Jesus. This is the elder's job. And of course, the elder can only sit with his people and say, hey, pay attention to Jesus. If he himself is first paying attention to Jesus. Paul begins by laying out his example. I lived among you humble but helpful. But then Paul notes beginning in verse 22 that he is no longer going to continue in this occupation. Though having led the church with humility and helpfulness. It is now going to be the elders responsibility. To be humble and helpful. Because Paul must move on. The Holy Spirit has commanded him to move on. He has no idea what awaits him. Except that it includes chains and tribulations. This is a man who understands one thing about his job transfer. No longer will he have humble helpfulness in the fruitful thriving ministry of Ephesus. Which he has enjoyed for three years or more. No, now he gets to go to jail in Jerusalem. Good deal, right? How many pastors do you know are going to get a letter in the mail from another church that says, would you come and be imprisoned here? And say, that's Jesus' call. That's what I want. And yet this is the Apostle Paul's sense of his calling. That the Holy Spirit says to him, now it's time for you to move on. And where are you going next? What is the next great glorious pulpit you get to occupy? Prison. Oh. But Paul is resolved to go. Because as a good leader, he has a small sense of himself. A huge sense of Jesus, which is being driven by the Holy Spirit. This is not a manufactured humility. This is not a self-created humility. Helpfulness. He is not helpful and humble because he is such a wonderfully superlative human being. But rather it is the Holy Spirit working within him, bringing about this result in verse 24. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me. 
When he says that none of these things move him, he's referring to the chains and tribulations in verse 23. He's not motivated by chains and tribulations. He's not like some sick and twisted guy who wants to go to prison, who wants to be a martyr. He's not hunting down suffering, but neither is he running from it. His movement out of Ephesus and into Jerusalem is not driven by his desire to be in prison. Nor is it driven by his desire to avoid prison. Paul is being moved by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who moves him, not his life's ambition. Some five and a half, six years ago, I was considering a call to a new church. This one. And I called a few pastors up on the phone and said, Hey, can you got any advice? Can you tell me what I should do with my life? And uh, one of them very wisely said, Noah, just remember this. The fact that it may or may not be more hard is not a symptom of whether or not Jesus wants you to do it. Just because something's more hard doesn't make it more holy. And just because something's more easy doesn't make it more godly. The difficulty, according to the Apostle Paul in verse 24, of the calling is irrelevant to whether or not you're called to do it. It is not simply we're called to easy stuff. And it is not simply we're called to hard stuff. It's that we're called to what Jesus wants us to do by His Holy Spirit and we move When the Spirit moves us, the Apostle Paul puts one thing in front of him. My life's ambition is not to avoid chains and tribulations. My life ambition is not to get them either. But rather in verse 24, his life's ambition is to finish his race with joy. To finish the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus... To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In this we see the heart of the Apostle Paul as a shepherd in the flock in Ephesus. He had a small sense of self, a large sense of Jesus. All of that driven by the Holy Spirit because he had one goal and one ambition. I want to preach Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to love Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to grow up into Jesus, to testify to the gospel, the good news of the grace or love of God. And I want to do it with joy to the end of my days. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. His wife's one ambition is to die preaching. To live preaching. To die preaching. This is what we're looking for when we look for elders. Those who have such a small sense of self that they say, whether I live or whether I die is immaterial. Whether I preach Jesus. That's what defines me. This is what we're looking for in elders. And elders, this is what we are called to do. As we see in the next verses... The Apostle Paul then says to them in verse 25, no more will this happen. Among you all, he says, I have gone about preaching the kingdom of God. 
He has faithfully made Jesus the focus of his ministry. He has kept Jesus first in everything he does. But no more will they see his face. Paul is leaving Ephesus. And it's time for someone else to come along and keep Jesus first. Therefore, I testify to you this day, verse 26, that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The Apostle Paul puts together these two ideas. He leaves with one final word. I am innocent of all your blood. If any of you die in your sins, it is not my fault. I am innocent. The reason? Because I have faithfully declared to you the whole counsel of God. Now, if you've ever heard that phrase, this is where we're going to have some fun. You have generally heard it described as, he preached every doctrine and every passage in the Bible. Right? That's how I normally have heard it. That's that's how I encountered it in most of the commentaries. I think they're all wrong. Sorry. When it says he preached the whole counsel of God, I don't think he meant every chapter of the Old Testament. When he preached the whole counsel of God, I don't think he meant every doctrine. I think he meant Jesus. The whole counsel of God. As Bob Godfrey said of the text, the whole counsel of God is that eternal decree for which he spoke. Jesus. You see, the point of Genesis is Jesus. The point of Exodus is Jesus. And if we ever preach the Old Testament and we don't get to Jesus, we didn't preach the whole counsel. We didn't get to the end. We didn't get to the point. He is the one of whom the prophets spoke. He is the point of the text. We're to keep him first in what we preach. Indeed, the Apostle Paul here in our text has said, I have not shunned to declare to you or to testify you repentance and faith in Jesus. He repeats the exact same phrase in the Greek here in verse 27. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. They're in parallel, verse 19 and 27. In which he says, I have not shrank back. I have not shunned to declare to you these things. Sorry, it's actually verse 20, not verse 19. Where he says, I have preached repentance and faith to you. I have preached the whole counsel of God. Jesus was first. In another word that we may put this, Paul says, I am innocent of your blood. Because I faithfully gave you Jesus' blood instead. I offered you the cross of Christ. I offered you his death for your sins. And so I am innocent. I can leave now. This is what elders are called to do. To apply the blood of Christ to each and every situation we encounter. To be innocent of the blood of our people by continually and constantly offering them the blood of Christ. When we come into a tough situation and people say marriage conflict, parenting conflict, co-worker conflict. And we as elders, man, how many times have we walked into conversations, guys, and we sit there and go, I have no idea what to tell you. 
It's about almost every conversation I have with you. Where I sit there and go, I have no idea how to solve your problem. And then the Apostle Paul brings me back to the truth of my calling. I'm not called to be a psychological guru. I'm not called to be a life coach. I can't tell you how to live your best life now. I can tell you how Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And I can tell you how that is moment by moment, situation by situation, the number one thing that you need to keep first in your heart and in your mind. This is shepherding. Men who lead the church by saying, Jesus, Jesus, are you paying attention to Jesus in everything you do? The Apostle Paul then turns to the elders and gives them their charge. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock, all the flock, among which the Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Notice the rich coming together of all Paul's themes. Number one, elders don't choose themselves. The Holy Spirit makes elders. We don't get elders by manufacturing them. The RPCNA doesn't actually have an elder-making factory. Sorry. First RP doesn't have a little elder-making kiln down in the basement where we just, you know, fashion little elders on our potting wheel and then we burn them. Some of us get really fancy glazes, you know, when we go through the kiln. No, that's not how it works. The Holy Spirit makes elders. The Holy Spirit makes them overseers. Those who are responsible to watch the flock. Paul says in verse 28, to watch yourselves and the flock in order to shepherd them. This watch has a particular end in mind there in verse 29. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things. To draw away disciples, notice this phrase, after themselves. Do you see the progression of Paul's metaphor? Elders, when you get back to Ephesus from Miletus, there's one thing you need to do. Watch. Pay very close attention to yourself and to the whole church. Why? Two reasons. Wolves are going to come in from outside, and wolves are going to grow up from within. You're going to get wolves through the swinging doors, and you're going to get wolves growing up in the pews among you. Wolves within, and wolves coming within. For this reason, elders, watch. Watch out. What's a wolf? In the metaphor, it's, it's the thing that eats sheep. They don't feed sheep. Shepherds feed sheep. Wolves eat sheep. They're the anti-shepherd. They don't give their lives for the well-being of the sheep. They take the well-being of the sheep for their own growth and prosperity. Those are wolves. In verse 29, Paul says that they speak deceitful things, causing others to follow them. Do you recognize that phrase? To follow after themselves. Instead of what? Following Jesus. You see, what do elders do? They shepherd the flock. What does shepherding the flock mean? 
Get believers to follow Jesus. How do you know you have a wolf and not an elder? The wolf says, follow me. The elder says, follow Jesus. The shepherd feeds the sheep, Jesus. Feast on him, delight in him, satisfy your soul in him, follow him. The wolf says, come to me and feed me. Satisfy me, pet my ego, praise me, fund me. The wolf lives to pray and to press. The shepherd lives to lay down his life, to love and to serve. So Paul says, watch. Watch, dear shepherds, that you do not become wolves. The great tragedy that the Apostle Paul is pointing out is that wolves will come through the door and will be tempted to elect them as shepherds. The great tragedy is that there will already be shepherds among us who will turn into wolves. And so Paul says, watch. I don't have to prove this, do I? We have too many heartbreaking stories, don't we? And I don't mean those big, bad evangelical churches with pastors who have messed up. I mean ours. Yes? Shepherds who have become wolves. And Paul says, watch. Because sheep become wolves too. Some of you may remember the pastor, Jim Garrison. He preached here prior to me taking the call. He said he still has nightmares of when sheep, where he would dream of sheep biting him. First time I heard him say that, I thought, that's so weird. And after being a pastor for a decade, I'm like, oh, I get it. Sometimes what looks like a sheep is a wolf, and sometimes what looks like a shepherd is a wolf. How do we know the difference? They say, look to Jesus. Those are the shepherds. Those are the sheep. It's about Jesus. They keep him first. They say, let us feed on Jesus. They say, let us dwell with Jesus. There is a preoccupation with Jesus and not the self. Paul says in verse 31, therefore watch. Remember that I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. This is the work of shepherding, to watch. Have you guys ever watched shepherds do their work? It's like watching the grass dry in the wind. It's like watching the paint dry on the walls. Do you know what shepherds do 99% of the time? Stand and watch. They just look at sheep. They just stand around looking at sheep. What do elders do? They shepherd the flock. They pay close attention to the sheep. They pray for you. They think about you. I remember someone first introducing me to the idea. I hadn't realized it. Do you know I think about you guys a lot more than you think about me? Is that surreal? It's surreal for me from the other side of the line. Some of you will leave this church and not think about me until Sunday morning next week. There isn't a single face in this room for whom I will not pray in the next 24 hours. 
There isn't a single face in this room that will not occur to me at least four to six times this week. This is the difference between a shepherd. They think about the flock. They look at the flock. They pay close attention to the flock. They do not cease to warn the flock. Are you paying attention to Jesus? Are you in prayer? Are you in fellowship with Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit giving you a small sense of self and a big sense of Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit moving you through your life? Or are you trying to be willful and self-determined? Friends, this is the work of shepherding. The Apostle Paul, having reviewed his leadership in Ephesus, having then commanded and commissioned the Ephesian elders to go back, returns now in verses 32 through 35 to a quick review of how he lived among them. The beginning, how he lived among them. The end, how he lived among them. The middle, how they should live. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. By this, the Apostle Paul means that he has given them what they need to know. They need to know the word of God and the grace of God. If you have men who know their Bibles, not just intellectually, but experientially, who live the love of Christ, then I commend you to them. Those are the men. The men who love God's word, who love God's people, and who love bringing God's word and God's people together. I commend you to those things. Those are good things. Go and enjoy them. Go delight yourself in them. Go enjoy the job. I commend to you God and his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. We need men, elders, shepherds, who believe that it is the grace and word of God that builds the church. Do you know why it's so important that shepherds not be super busy running around trying to manage this program and trying to run this thing and run that thing? Because we can't build anything. Have you ever heard this phrase? I heard it just this last week. Let's go build the kingdom. Do you know that that verb is never used with that noun in the New Testament? We don't build the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. We seek the kingdom. The building of the kingdom is Jesus' business. We believe with the Apostle Paul that it is the word of God and the grace of God that builds us up. And so elders are busy watching the flock, warning them, you need grace and you need gospel. Day after day, they whisper to you, you need grace and you need gospel. Week after week, they thunder away to you. You need grace and you need gospel. They say, you need Jesus. No, you're not listening. You need Jesus. No, you're still distracted. You need Jesus. They keep Jesus first. This is how they shepherd. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities for those who are with and for those who are with me i have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak the apostle paul says with my very livelihood i put myself on the line and said it's all about jesus interestingly enough 
One way to interpret this text is to say that pastors should be bivocational or fundraise their own income. The Presbyterian Church on the whole has not accepted this interpretation. Rather, they've gone the exact opposite direction and said, no, Paul's actually pointing out that preaching Jesus is of such priority and preeminence that we should pay our pastors enough that they don't have to do anything else. That they can be entirely preoccupied with saying, Jesus, here's Jesus, you need Jesus, here's Jesus. And keep Jesus first. Now, why would anyone do this? Why would any crazy person in these pews be willing to accept a nomination or an election to the office of elder this fall? Who would possibly be moved to do this? To lay down your life and to sacrifice yourself for the sheep. To embrace the tears and the trials. Paul lays out his final and most important principle. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. On the one hand, we have simply the ethical principle. Paul ends with this ethical idea. Your life is better when you give it away than when you keep it or add to it. When we had six kids, but they were a lot smaller and younger and living in Oklahoma, people would come up to us regularly and say, why did you do that? And we got to the point where we would say to them, well, what else are you going to spend your time and money on? It's got to go somewhere. Why not them? Friends, it's better to give than to receive. You have to give away all your money. You can't die with it. You have to give away all your time. It's going to pass anyway. You have to give away your love. You can't keep it. There's no love that grows when you hold on to it. Love grows when you give it. You have to give everything you have. Your energy, your health. It's all going to go away anyway. Your hair, it's going to go away. I don't know how you make wigs, I guess. Maybe that one doesn't work. The point is, we have to give what we have. And when we give cheerfully, and we embrace the call to give to one another, there is a goodness. A blessing. The last thing I want you to get, though, is the Apostle Paul doesn't simply lay down the ethical truth, sweet as it is. Your lives are better if you live like shepherds, giving yourself away. He says, as the Lord Jesus said. You see, this is Jesus' idea. It's not just some ethical principle about how to live a good life. It's Jesus' gospel. That Jesus leads us to this blessing by giving himself away for us. Why are there people crazy enough to devote their life to loving people who are hard to love and saying to them constantly, do you know Jesus loves you? No, no, no. Turn off the phone. Listen to me for a minute. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Why do people do that? Because he loved me. Because he loved me. Is that true of you? Can you actually say with me, he's loved me? And I want the world to know it. 
That's the heart of an elder. That's the heart of a shepherd. I have been loved. Come and be loved. Here's our Jesus. He leads us through his elders. So friends, keep Jesus first. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sweetness of his gospel, the riches of his truths. We thank you that he has loved us and given his life for us. That he is the good shepherd. Indeed, the great shepherd of the sheep. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us with elders who love like Jesus, who live like Jesus, and who in every way point the church to Jesus, that he in all things would be preeminent. Father, forgive us that we put other things before him. And please help us to make Christ first in all our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond to the preaching of God.